0: Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. All right, let's get down to business. So today I'm starting a brand new series called Solid Rock or Sinking Sand. So let me introduce it with a little story, it comes from the 19th century. There's a Baptist preacher in Surrey, England. His name was Edward Moot. And he was walking to work to the church one day in 1834. And he had these words, you know sometimes just this this expression drops into your thoughts, and this is what happened. And, and the words were, on, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And that, those words just went over and over in his head, and then he kind of started humming it, and then some other words came. And as soon as he got down to the office, he sat down and he started writing out the words to this hymn that was coming to him. And he had written about half of it on that day. Then the next day, uh, a friend of his uh, had sent a message. His wife was dying, and she was very sick, and, and they wanted him to come over and pray, so he went over to pray. And after praying, uh, he said, we should sing, we should sing said, a hymn. And so his friend couldn't find the hymnal. And then he thought, I have a hymn. And he, and he pulled it out of his pocket. He had this half-written hymn. He pulled it out of his pocket. And he had this tune in his head as to how it would go. And so they sang this hymn. And this, his friend's wife was so moved. She says, I must have a copy of that hymn. He says, well, it's not finished yet. It's not completed. And she, and she was dying, so he, he had to hurry. So see, he went, and the next day he finished the hymn. And then he immediately sent it to the publishers. And he published a 1,000 copies of this. And, of course, she got the very first copy of this. Song And then what happened was it became so popular that it is known. It's actually known, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less is the name of the song. It's not called Solid Rock. And in the last 200 years, almost 200 years, it's been in 30% of every hymnal that's ever been printed. And then it, So that's like, kind of like being on the Billboard Top 100 for 200 years. So it's a pretty popular song. And then in 2023, it was in 100% of the hymnals. And I know immediately know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, do they even print hymnals anymore? Yeah, they printed one, and it was in it. <laughs> so, 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 so there you go. And so uh, we're going to be taking the metaphor of solid rock and sinking sand, and we're going to be digging into it and looking at how it applies to our life. And I, I can't even say sinking sand without thinking that Stephen Wright joke. How do you know who Stephen Wright is, the deadpan, one-line guy? Some, only a few of you know who he is. He, he, mostly deadpan one-liners, that's all it is. For, for example, stuff like this. Uh, some people are afraid of heights. I'm afraid of widths. He says, if at first you don't succeed, then skydiving is probably not the right sport for you. But here's his sinking sand one. He said, when we grew up, we had a sandbox in the backyard. It was a quicksand box. I was an only child, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> So when we look at sinking sand and solid rock, I mean, you find that metaphor all the way through scripture, but it was Jesus who really drilled down into it in the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, you all know his famous parable about the wise man and the foolish man. And he says, anybody who hears the word of God and goes and does it is like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Anybody who hears the word and does not do it is like the foolish man who built his house upon the rock. Sam! And so, you know, when Jesus gave that metaphor, building on the rock, building on the sand, everybody in his audience, everybody knew what he was talking about. You know why? If you go to Israel, I'll tell you, there's two things you'll see rock and sand. And there's not much else. Why they're fighting over this piece of desert, I will never know. But I mean, it is really just rock and sand. And why Jesus' father, supposed father Joseph, was a carpenter, again, how he made a living in a country with no trees, again, I'll never know. And I think that's why Jesus didn't want to be a carpenter. And he was going to either be a mason or a messiah and so he chose being a messiah and and that's the the route he took why would you be a carpenter in a land with no trees but anyway they all knew what it was about they all knew houses built on sand and they all knew houses built on rock and in that day the 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 greatest builder of them all was a god by the name of herod the great and herod the great built on both rock and sand and if you ever get to israel and I hope they don't blow it up before you get there. And if you do get there, you've got to go see his winter retreat. Herod's winter retreat on the Mount Masada. And it oversees the Dead Sea, and it is this magnificent, incredible sky fortress that it was absolutely impenetrable, and there's a great story around it. But anyway, 2,000 years later, it is still standing. You know why? Because it was built upon the rock. But he also had a beach house. What do you think the beach house was built on? (laughs) That was his summer house, and it was in Caesarea. And here's a picture of it. There it is. And you say, where is it? Well, it's gone because it was built On the sand, but you can see where it used to be, and it's been gone for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so they understood what he was talking about, that if you build your house upon the rock, it'll stand. And if you build your house upon the sand, it will fall. And he's talking about building our lives. How are we going to build our lives? Are we going to build them on rock or sand? You choose. So I have a fascinating story for you. I think you'll all enjoy it. So for many, many years, this church did mission trips into Matamoros, Mexico. How, how many of you were on one of those trips? Anybody in the room? A bunch of hands going up in the room. We took a lot of young people uh, to this. And I'll tell you where it is. You, you go into Texas, and in the very tip of Texas, the very southernmost part, there's a town called Brownsville. And then right across the border is a town called Matamoros, Mexico. Now, you can no longer take a mission trip there. The cartels, the drug cartels have taken over the border cities of Mexico and even the missionaries who live in Brownsville will not go over into Matamoros because it's so deadly and so violent. But we used to take people every year, sometimes twice, sometimes three times a year, we would take van loads of people into Matamoros and we'd build houses for people. We'd visit the squatter's village and we'd minister to people and we was a tremendous time. And then before we made the long, arduous journey back to Canada, 36 hours on the highway, we would give them a two- or three-hour break before we left, and we would go right across the causeway into the Gulf of Mexico from Brownsville is a place called South Padre Island. And so here's a, here's a map. You see it. See the Gulf of Mexico there. You see, the, you see Texas, Corpus Christi. Right at the very bottom there, you see Matamoros, Mars. And there is South Padre Island. It is 65 miles long, and then there's a little bit of a break, and then there's North Padre Island above that. And these are barrier islands that go up the whole coast of Texas. Now, here's an aerial view of South Padre Island. You can see the blue waters. It's beautiful. You can see the sand. You can see the causeway. Is how to get there. Now, I'm not a geologist, but here's what I think. You can call that an island if you want, but it looks like a sandbar to me. And when you build on a sandbar, you've got to expect interesting results. So when we were there in 2006, we took our team over. We spent the afternoon on South Padre Beach and they were building a building. I'll show you a picture of it. Here it is. It was called the Ocean Tower, 31 stories high, exactly the same height as the Richardson Building in the corner of Portage and Main. So you can all visualize how big this building was. So very, very tall. Uh, These suites, these condos were were going to be for sale for $2 million each, luxury suites. So they were building this. Now, you can see the beach, and you can see the sand, and you can see the water. And here's my question. When you look at that building, does anything seem off to you? And if it doesn't, let me superimpose another picture beside it. Now do you see what's wrong? And let me tell you what happened to Ocean Tower is it started to sink into the sand before it was even completed. So then what they had to do is they had to straighten it out. And I'm gonna show you a little video. Do you wanna see this video? It's only 10, 15 seconds long. I'm gonna show you the video of how they use modern scientific methods to straighten out the ocean tower. You gotta watch really carefully. Run the video, watch carefully, because it's very subtle. Here it goes. If we're all cheering. <laughs> Problem solved. It's no longer crooked. A hundred and twenty-five million dollars worth of building that went up in 15 seconds. See, this is what happens. Jesus said the foolish man who builds his house upon the, uh, the sand when it falls, and great will be its fall. So we have to decide where we're going to build our life, our 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 house of life. So if, if any of you have ra- read A Greater Perspective, my book on the Sermon on the Mount, and if you haven't, why not is my question for you. But you'll know that I go into this whole parable about building on the rock and building on the sand. And I, I sort of make this conclusion that Jesus says there's only two kinds of people in this world. And the two types of people in this world are rock dwellers and sand dwellers. And you have to decide where you are gonna build your house? You know what? The beach is a wonderful place to visit. Who doesn't like to go to the beach? We love to go to the beach. The big question is, are you going to build your house on the beach? Because the beach is going to move. It's because it's nothing more than sinking sand. And so when we look at Jesus, Jesus said he was going to build his house. Do you remember what he said? He said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that's what he's decided to do. And so you say, well, what is the rock? What exactly is this rock? And it's so clear from Scripture again and again. It tells us what the rock is. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, way back then, verse 4, it says, "He is, uh, God is the rock, the God of truth, in whom there is no injustice. And so the word of God and God himself, that is the rock. And if we're going to build our house upon the rock, we build our life upon the word of God. So what is it? That the world, those who hear the word and do not do it, what are they building their house of? What does it mean to build your house upon the sand? I'll tell you what it is. It's the shifting, sinking sands of the ephemeral wisdom of human philosophy and human reasoning. And they are things like Marxism and socialism and communism and humanism and secularism and wokeism. Basically anything with an ism. Beware of the isms, I say. And we look at those people and their end is one that is calamitous. Because there is nothing for it to stand upon. And I remember this word that that Abraham Lincoln said. He held up his Bible one day and he said this. He said, this book is the greatest gift that God has given to man. For without it, we would not know right and wrong. Is that true? Is that true? Can we know right and wrong? See, that's what this message is gonna be all about. Can we know, do we know right and wrong without God's word? And the answer, I'm gonna give it to you right at the outset, is no, we can't. So we're gonna be looking today at a verse that you all know, very famous. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Probably every one of you here could quote it. But we're going to break it down. We're going to dig into it. And so here's what it says. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so his promise is that the truth shall make you free. And so we love that expression. People quote that expression all the time. I mean, secular people quote it, do they not? You will hear judges quote it. And you will hear activists quote it. And you will hear lawyers quote it. You will hear movie actors quote it. And you know, even, this is my, the funniest one ever, even the CIA, CIA the central intelligence agency, uses it as one of their mottos. Like this is on the marble floors of the headquarters in Langley, Virginia. And ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I thought, really? The CIA? This organization that teaches its agents to lie and to deceive and to murder people and is the purveyor of more disinformation than probably any other organization in human history that brings down entire governments in different countries? They will set you free? (laughs) What truth are they talking about? That's what I want to know. So there's a great irony in that. And so there's this uh, joke you maybe have heard about this president. He wants to determine which is the greatest of the law enforcement agencies. So he has a little plan. And what they're going to do is they're going to set a rabbit free in the forest. And they're going to take these organizations and send them into the forest to see which one can find the rabbit. So they sent the the rabbit into the forest, and the first one out was the FBI. So the FBI came up with a plan, and they sent an agent into the forest undercover as a squirrel for two years. And after two years, he emerged and says, I couldn't find a rabbit. So they issued a report to the president and said, rabbits do not exist. So the CIA went in, and of course they were looking around for two months, and they couldn't find the, the rabbit, so they burned the forest to the ground, killing every animal along with the rabbit, and they said, we, this operation was in the interest of national security, and by the way, the rabbit had it coming to them. And then the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, they went in, they were only in there two hours, and they brought out a badly beaten bear, and the bear said, all right, all right, I'm a rabbit, I'm a rabbit. LAUGHTER <laughs> So we know we know when, when we look when we look into Scripture, this is what we discover that he tells us exactly how you will know the truth. And if you can't quote John eight thirty two without quoting John eight thirty one. Because he says, if you abide in my truth, then you are my disciples and then you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You can't separate those two. And people keep on trying to separate it. You will not know the truth if you do not abide in his word. So how do you build your house upon the rock? By abiding in his truth and walking in that truth. So when we look at our world, we look at the sand dwellers, as I call them. What do they build their house on? I mean, what, what, is, what, is that, what does that, that look like? I mean, what is truth? When we live in a post-Christian culture, what is morality? What is truth? Where, where, what is the basis of morality today? And what we know it is, is it's moral relativism. And people base their life on what? On public opinion. And whatever the current, you know, whichever way the wind's blowing, you put your finger to the wind, and whatever way the wind's blowing, that becomes our essence for morality. You know this is true. Opinion polls are how we determine morality in a post-Christian culture. For, for example, 75% of Canadians approve of same-sex marriage. So that must make it right. 56 of Canadians uh, approve of abortion. So that must make it right. Now, I want to tell you how valuable. This is what a, an opinion poll really means in the long run. Nothing. It means nothing. And I can prove it to you. There is no value, no moral measurement to an opinion poll. Because we could go back several hundred years. If we went back to the, to the 17th century, for example, 18th century, uh, or somewhere back then, 100% of people supported human slave trade. Well, 100% of white people. What percent of black people? Not very many. Maybe close, somewhere close to zero. A more contemporary example would be 1945. Something you'll probably all remember. In 1945, the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end the World War in the Pacific Theater, killing 200,000 people almost instantly. And when they asked the American people whether they approved of this, 85% of Americans approved of dropping the bomb. And killing all those people. Only 10% objected and 5% didn't care one way or another. They were indifferent. Now, here's my question for you. If you were to run that poll today, would you get a different result? Yeah, of course you, you would. It would be almost exactly the opposite today. Now, you know, I'm not going to defend the, you know, their belief back then, but there was a reason for it. The reason for it was they wanted to end the war. They wanted to stop seeing their sons and their nephews and their husbands being killed. They knew the Japanese were never going to surrender, and so they knew maybe the only way to do it was to drop this bomb and end it, which it did. So when it happened, they supported it. But today, we wouldn't accept that. And that's why you can't put any value. It's moral relativism. Whatever the feeling of the day is determines what is right and wrong, and that doesn't actually make it right or wrong. I don't know if you know this, 33% of Americans still believe the 2020 U.S. election was stolen and rigged. 24% of Americans believe that the space program, the moon landing, was faked. And that same group of people believes that professional wrestling is real. Those exact same people... (laughs) 20% 20%, 20% of Americans believe that the COVID-19 vaccine contained a microchip and the CIA is following you. So that means, I don't know if this is right. That means 20% of you in this room have a microchip in you right now. And the CIA knows exactly where you are. You're at church today. Well, I knew that too. I didn't even need a microchip. No, no. So you can see how absolutely, totally ridiculous this is. How are we going to know what is right and wrong? And I'll tell you who I feel most sorry for and I feel like their greatest victims in this is young people. How are young people going to know? How can they possibly know right from wrong in this culture and this world we live in today? And they've admitted, there was a survey done in Canada, it was fascinating, and 85%, there was 1,500 uh, Canadians from coast to coast between the ages of 18 and 24, and they were asked this simple question, can you tell the difference between right and wrong? And 85% of them said they could not. They could not tell what was true and what was false. And so I think we're in big trouble. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to figure out what morality is. And I'm going to take a little risk here today. And I'm going to dip my toe in the deep end of theology. And I'm hoping you don't drown, but I'm more hoping I don't drown. So are you ready for this? Here we go. So about 400 years before Christ, there was a Greek philosopher. You all know his name. His name was Plato. And uh, Plato actually wrote this book, and it was called Euthyphro. And, and Euthyphro was a story about Socrates. Now, Socrates was a predecessor of Plato, and uh, he was, you know, these philosophers, all they did was think. They just sat around, think, think, think. That's all they ever did. And so he tells this story of a generation before about Socrates having a conversation with this guy named Euthyphro. And uh, he asks them this question, which is today known as the Euthyphro Dilemma. And so I'm going to throw it up on the screen so you can follow along with me. This was the question Socrates presumably asked Euthyphro. And he asked him this. Is something moral because God commands it? Or does God command it because it is moral? Now, understand this, because Plato was writing this, he, the, the God was in the plural, because in his mind, he was referring to the Greek gods. And so he says, you know, is something moral because the gods command it, or because the gods command it, is it was it moral, right? So that was the way he put it. But for our purposes, and for theological purposes, we're going to look at it as our God, because Christian scholars have been studying these and thinking about these things for 2,000 years. And we maybe don't recognize this, but, but Plato had m- as much influence on Western culture as any human being with the exception of maybe Jesus Christ. And this question in particular is important because it's, it's asking this question, what is right and wrong? What is morality? All right, so, so we ha- here's, I'm going to break it down for you. Here's why it's a dilemma. See, if something is only moral because God commanded it, then that means that it was arbitrary. It was at the whim of God. He just said, because I say this, then that is so. Completely arbitrary. There's no basis for the reason for it to be right or wrong. And here's the big objection that is from non-Christians. They said, well, I don't want your supposed God telling me what is right and wrong. I don't want your supposed God just making up rules for me and telling me who I can love or how I can live my life sexually or what I can do with my life. And so I'm not interested in your arbitrary rules. This is the big objection to it. Now, if any of you have had the worst parenting moment ever, which you all have, we we do this too, and I'll I'll explain it to you. It's where your kid asks you something, and you, you tell him to do something, you say, I want you to do this, and he says, why? And you say, because I said so, that's why. How many of you have ever done that as a parent, every single person in the room? That is your worst parenting moment ever. And I'll tell you why, because you didn't explain to them why. And you just told them because I said so, that's why. And if you want rebellious children, that's a great answer for them. And it's also true with rebellious human beings. They don't want to be told that they have to do this or have to do that if they don't know why. So that's the first part of the dilemma. The second part of the dilemma is this, or did God command it because it was moral? Now, here's the problem with that then that means that morality is somehow outside of God. It already exists even without God. And God only commanded it as moral because it was already moral. So then the objectors would say this, then what do I need God for? If morality already exists without God, I don't really need God. I can just figure out, you know, what is, what is moral on my own. And that's what the neo-atheists are talking about today. These people like Sam Harris and, and Neil Tyson deGrasse and that, they said, well, we don't really need God. But see, the objection to them is, then what is the basis for your belief? So the Christian thinkers have been pondering this and saying, okay, how do we know that? How do we know what is moral? So I'm going to give you two theologians that were basically contemporaries, lived around the same time in the Middle Ages, medieval times, 14th century. And the first one is in England. His name was William of Ockham. And uh, here's his book that he wrote, William of Ockham, Questions on Virtue, Goodness, and the Will. And basically, this is what William of Ockham said. He was a Franciscan uh, priest. He was a scholar. He was a theologian. He was a philosopher. He was an intellect. He was an educator. So he's very, very smart. But, but this is what he said. He said that God has what, what he called in Latin, potentia absoluta, uh, absolute power. And that God is sovereign. And what God says goes. And if God says something is moral, it is moral. If God said two plus two is five, then two plus two is five. So that's what he was talking about. And so he said, if God said that adultery was moral, adultery would be moral. If God said murder was moral, then murder would be moral. And to take it a step further, he said, because God is sovereign and because God walks in absolute power, he can change morality at any time if he wants This has become known in theological circles as the divine command theory. Now, probably most of you can already figure out there's some problems with that, but there's a lot of people that that believe that and would embrace that. So, you go across Europe, you go to Italy, and you find living just before William of Ockham there was a man, you'll all know his name, and his name was St. Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas was actually a Dominican priest, also an intellect, also a scholar, also an educator, also a theologian. And he wrote this book. This book was called the Summa Theologica, which is, you know, Italian for the summary of theology. And so this is what Thomas Aquinas said. He first of all establishes in this book that God was free. He asks the question, is God free? And then he goes through scripture and he proves that God is truly free. The one thing God has is he's free, he is sovereign, he is free. And then he says, now that we've established that God is free, here's the question. If he is free, is he free to sin? Now we know what the question, what Occam's answer to that was. The answer was, yes, he was but he says, no, he is not free to sin. And the reason he is not free to sin, because that's outside of his nature. And the scripture is really clear on this. It says that God is not a man that he should sin, or lie, or a son of man that he should repent. The scripture says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor can he tempt anyone else from evil. The scripture says there is no injustice in God, and that God is perfect in all his ways, and he is without sin. So in fact... He can't actually sin. Even though he's free, he can't actually sin because he would be define his own nature. Are you following this so far? So here's where we conclude this. I'm going to wrap this up, this little section here. I'm hoping you're tracking with me. I said I was going into the deep end. So, so what, what we find St. Thomas Aquinas saying is this. He's saying, no, it's not something's not moral because God commands it, but nor is does God command it because it's moral? Here's the, the, the C. That's A, that's B. He he provides a C. He says, no, God commands it because he is moral. And see, the commands that God makes are based on his nature. Because he is good and because he is compassionate, because he is is pure, because he is holy and because he is without sin. And everything he commands, if you think about it, every single one of his commands go back to his nature. The goodness of God and the purity of God and the love of God. And so what God is saying to us is he's telling us, He's saying, this is right and wrong, not because I'm trying to impose something upon you that is going to restrict your life and make your life miserable, and I'm not the cosmic killjoy, but he says, I actually have a way for you to be free. So I think, I personally think that Thomas Aquinas had a much better answer than William of Ockham, and I think that's why he's a saint and William's not. That's (laughs) what I I think, but then again, what do I know? And so let's talk about this. Let's get back to the whole thing about freedom. So he says, you shall know the truth, and it's the truth that will set you free. And everybody wants to be free. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? The one thing people want in life is they want freedom. And I know people think that, you know, the highest aspiration of humanity is actually happiness. I don't believe that's true. I think what people really want is to be free. I think they will put up with a lot of misery in life and even hardship and even calamity in life as long as I'm free. And we're like Braveheart, like William Wallace lying on that slab as they were flaying him alive. And what did he cry out? Happiness? No, he cried out, freedom! Because within our heart, Our heart cries out to be free. And yes, we know there'll be adversity in this life. Yes, we know we'll have challenges. But what we really want at the very core of our being is to be free. And that's what the scripture promises us. So let's go back to our sand dwellers and our rock dwellers for a moment. And here's the fundamental difference between these two groups, other than the fact that one's on the sand and one's on the rock. See, the sand dwellers, they actually have a form of freedom. And you know what that freedom is? It's freedom from Their freedom from the rules and regulations, their freedom from the commands of God, their freedom from the restrictions. But is it really freedom? And I'll tell you why it's not because the results of their behavior lead them to calamitous effects. See, every action has consequences. And if you live free from the the laws of nature and if you live free from the laws of God, you end up in in actually more bondage than you could possibly any other way. And you look at these people that are free to take drugs and they become addicts. And you see people who are free to live carelessly in different ways and they're in more bondage to depression and discouragement and habits and addictions than anything else. And you think they're not actually free. They think they're free. But they're not free at all, they're in bondage. And then you look at the Christians, the the rock dwellers, the people who are trying as best they can to build their house upon the rock. It's not a freedom from, it's a freedom to. It's a freedom to act like God. It's a freedom to aspire to his nature. It's a freedom to seek peace and joy and compassion and love and care and concern for for fellow, fellow human beings. And what that freedom too does is it gives us all the benefits of health and freedom and liberty. And that's why Jesus said, if you abide in my word, if you build your house upon the rock, meaning that you hear his word and do it, then you know the truth and then the truth shall set you free. Now, I know some of you still aren't convinced and I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations to close this off and hopefully convince you of this. So some of you know that I took up tennis basically as an adult about 10 years ago. And um, my whole family played tennis and, and all my kids took lessons and they all got really good. And My wife played tennis with them. And I don't know where I was. I guess I was at work. I don't know why I wasn't playing tennis with them. And so then every once in a blue moon, we'd all go play tennis and everyone would beat me. My children would beat me at tennis. My wife would beat me in tennis. My 85-year-old mother would beat me at tennis. And I thought, why am I such a terrible tennis player? And it wasn't for lack of trying. I was trying really hard. I want you to know that. I was trying really hard. You know what I'd do? I'd serve really, really hard into the net. And I'd return the ball really, really hard into the fence. And, uh, And you know what I was? I was free from the restrictions of the game. I mean, I didn't know the rules. I mean, I knew the rules, actually, how you keep score. But what I didn't know was the fundamentals of the game. I didn't know how to make the shot. didn't know how to control the racket. Didn't know, I didn't know any of these stuff. I was a terrible tennis player. I thought, why am I so terrible? And the reason is I was breaking the rules. Was I free? Yeah, I was free to play terrible, if that's what you want. So I decided, no, no, I, I'm, I'm going to get good at this game. So I did something really weird. You know what I did? I took a lesson, is what I did. Yeah, yeah, you didn't know where that was going? I took a proud guy like me taking a lesson and I discovered I was doing everything wrong. I started studying the videos and I started studying Federer and Nadal and these guys and realized I was doing everything wrong. And I was free from the restrictions of the game But I was also free to head into the parking lot anytime I wanted, instead of into the court. And so I thought, no, I gotta change the way I play. And so then I recruited my son, who's a very good tennis player, and I said, you need to teach me how to play this game tired of being so awful. My goal was to be able to beat 80-year-olds and up. That's, what I That's all I really want. And, and so we went out once a week, and he taught me how to serve, and he taught me how to do a ground stroke, and he taught me how to do a top spin hit, and he taught me how to lob, and he taught me how to volley, and how to do a drop shot. And you know what? I'm never, I'm never going to beat Novak. I may never even beat my son, but I can beat an 85-year-old almost any day of the week. And then, but here, here's where I'm really going with this is I'm actually, it's way freer. Before it was frustrating, it was miserable, I was mad, I was throwing my racket into the, into the ground, and now I can play with a certain degree of freedom. Why? Because I learned to keep the fundamentals. I actually controlled myself and kept the rules, and by keeping the rules, I actually became more free. Are you following this? Let me give you one more example in closing. Uh, maybe because maybe some of you don't know tennis, but this one, you know, you know what? Language is the same way. I don't know if you've noticed this about me. I'm a relatively free speaker right? I don't have any problem speaking. Have you noticed that? I can actually speak indefinitely if I want. I can speak a lot longer than you could possibly ever listen to me speak. <laughs> and That's why I have this countdown clock. It's always starts blinking when I'm going over town because they know I could start. If they don't stop me, I'm going to keep going and going. Why? Because I can speak freely and I can communicate quite freely. And you know why I'm able to do that? It's because I actually know the rules of speech. I actually know grammar, and I know syntax, and I know sentence structure, and you have to put those things together to be, ke- be able to communicate freely in a, in, a, in a language. And I actually know a bunch of big words. You know, that kind of helps too, because when you have an extensive vocabulary, you can elucidate uh, you know, very precipitously, and you know people are going to understand you or not. Who knows? right? And, uh, and, uh, you know, you throw these words out people know what you're talking about, but that's okay. At least they know you can speak freely. Now you compare that to how I speak when we went on mission trips in Mexico and I was in this Spanish environment. And guess what? I didn't speak freely. You know why? I didn't know the rules of Spanish. And I couldn't speak it very well. And, you know, I'd, and, I, you know, and I'd memorized a few, few phrases. You do that when you travel. You know, I spent enough time in Mexico, I memorized some phrases, and I could sort of fake it for about 30 seconds, right? You know, so I'd have a few things that come out of my mouth. You know, buenos dias, buenos, buenos tardes, buenos noches, adios, hasta luego, hasta la vista, baby. Uh, Dios te bendiga, donde este el baño, por favor. And so, you know, there's these expressions you can learn, but when I get with a Spanish Speaker, can I speak freely? No, Why not? Because I don't know the rules of the language and I don't know the vocabulary. And see, that's what it's like for us with God's word. When we learn God's word, when we begin to abide in God's word, all of a sudden we get a certain freedom. We have this freedom because all of a sudden we can freely live our lives. And it's far from being restricted. We're actually free because the scripture says, he who the son sets free is free indeed. And so if you abide in his word, then you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that's what God calls us to is freedom. Let's stand together, shall we? All right, we're going to take just a moment here and do something we do every, every week. And uh, we're going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes for a, a moment. And uh, this all begins with a relationship with Jesus. And if you haven't had that definitive moment where you've invited Christ into your life, then your house is not built on the rock. And we want your house built on the rock. And if you're here today, and you've never made that decision and you're not sure if you were to die tonight if you're going to heaven, I'm talking to you. And we am not asking if you've been to church or if you've been baptized as an infant. I'm asking you this. Have you had a personal relationship with Jesus? Have you invited him into your life? Have you said yes about building your house in the rock? And if you haven't done that, we're going to give you an opportunity to do it today. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to single you out. I'm not going to ask you to say anything publicly. So right where you are, with every head bowed. If you would like to do that, I want you to just slip up your hand real quietly so I can see it. Just take a moment. Let me know by singling me. Thank you on the side. Thank you in the back, front. Anybody else want to join these folks? Won't call you forward, but you do need to make a decision. All right, great. So let's all pray together. And if you raise your hand, make sure you pray with us, right? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. You made this great promise to us that you sent your Son to die on the cross for my sin and to wash it all away. And then the third day he rose again and he forever lives to be my Lord. And though I'll never be perfect on this side of heaven, by your grace I can work towards it. I am free to follow you because he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And Lord, help me to abide in your word. Help me to be your disciple indeed so that I may know the truth and the truth shall set me free. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's give the Lord a hand, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose.